Welcome you all, my name is Simon Stokes. If you've never been here before, I just want to say especially a warm welcome to you. Um, this is RUF, and we are a community of people that want to know Jesus. We're a community of people who really Jesus is for anyone, that is for everyone, and we want to be a part of that with you if we can in any way. So um, please let me know if there's anything you need or anything that we can do for you here tonight. Um, I'm going to turn that down. So, uh, I saw something a few years ago on Facebook, and it really stuck with me because when Katie and I were living in St. Louis, we were part of a church plant that was kind of focused on racial reconciliation, and being in St. Louis, uh, there was just a lot of racial tension that was in that city, and when we left, uh, it was probably four or five months before Ferguson happened, which, if you know anything about that city, Ferguson is St. Louis, it's just a different part of it, um, and so I saw this on Facebook, it kind of went viral when this happened, and I really, really stuck with me because this is, in a lot of ways, our home uh, for five years. And someone, uh, a man named Ben Watson, who's an NFL player for the Saints, he had written on his Facebook this, kind of responding to the tragedy of Fer- Ferguson and naming the problem. He said this, At some point while I was playing or preparing to play Monday Night Football, the news broke about the Ferguson decision, about the police officer who was let off. Um, after trying to figure out how I felt, I decided to write it down and hear my thoughts. And he kind of goes into a long list of thoughts. I'm just going to read a few here. He's really remarkably balanced in this. He says, I'm angry because the story has been justice. then passed down for generations, seem to be continuing before our very eyes. And then he turns the, kind of the tables and he says, I'm frustrated because pop culture, music, and movies glorify these types of police-citizen altercations and promote an invincible attitude that continues to get young men killed in real life away from the safety of movie sets and music studios. And he goes on to name more of his feelings. I wish I had time to read kind of the whole thing to y'all, but I don't. I encourage you to try to find it at some point. But he ends this by saying, I'm encouraged. Because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we're racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason that we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through His Son, Jesus, and with it a transformed heart and mind. What's Ben Watson kind of putting his finger on right here? That behind all the problems that we experience of racism, of sexism, of xenophobia, of sickness, of death, and heartache, that the root of our problem is not some sort of faceless kind of culture of whatever. Because every culture is made of individual people. And all those people's root problem, um, our root part problem, especially mine, is not a lack of knowledge or discipline or compassion or perception, but it's sin. And the cure for us is not kind of new information or the right program. The cure is actually God doing something in people that people can't do for themselves. And one of the things that we've been wanting to talk about this semester is the idea of story. That everybody lives in a story with a beginning, a middle, and end. And the Bible is telling a story. And one of the main things the Bible is getting at in this story is how does God deal with our problem of sin? How does he deal with the fact that we're separated by nature from him? We're separated by nature from the people around us, by nature from ourselves. Well, in every good story, there are just major themes and major tensions that have to be dealt with. And in the Bible, one of those things is sin. And kind of counteracting that on the other side of it is this idea of covenant. That covenant, this agreement with God where he goes and he meets with his people and says, you are my people now. 
that this is the glue that holds the story together. Because the tension in the Old Testament, the first big chunk of our Bible that a lot of us find hard to read, but is actually really, really good and super important, um, is that God's people have violated this covenant with the Lord. And they violated it so much and in such an egregious way that you're wondering, is he finally going to dump these people? Is he going to divorce them? And an example that he gives is in Ezekiel 16. He speaks to Israel. He says, you were like an unwanted baby who on the day you were born, nobody cared for. You were cast out. Nobody wanted you. But I came along. I saw you exposed in a field on the ground. I said, live. When everybody else said, die. And you, Israel, grew up before me. We got married. We did all the things that married people do. I clothed you. I gave you good food, a place to live. I was always faithful to me. But you betrayed me as many times as you could. And I am so mad about that, but I'm so jealous for you. How can I give you up? I love you. But God needs a way to make His people faithful. Do you see the tension there? Their sin... Our sin and God's faithfulness to us. I love you. How can I give you up? You cannot continue to be like this, though. That this theme of covenant keeps the story together. That God doesn't just fly off the handle and divorce His people, but neither does He excuse the betrayal and kind of sweep it under the rug as though He was some sort of dysfunctional family. Instead, His covenant holds them together, keeps them together. And so tonight, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about... How does God dealing with this part of us, this our sin, in a way that we can't deal with ourselves? How does this play out in the Bible? So I want to talk about two things here. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the shadow in the Old Testament. I want to talk about the reality in the New Testament. Shadow in the Old Testament, reality in the New Testament. So I want to start off here with the shadow. This author, the author of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Have you ever wondered why the God of the Old Testament told his people to follow all these rules, and then in the New Testament he gets rid of those things? Like, why can't I eat shrimp in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament I can just pig out at Lobster Fest? Like, why is that an okay thing? Is it because God is like this capricious being that wants to see how much crazy control he can exert on my life? Like, I don't think so. In the Bible, there's this enfolding of what is called the covenant of grace. That from the very beginning, all of God's dealings with His people have been gracious. And that's as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. However, the way that God lays out this covenant in the Old Testament is that He puts things in place that will point the way forward. Shadows that point the way forward to the reality of what He's going to do in the New Testament. See, the goal of the Old Testament is to teach God's people their need for redemption from sin to live a holy life where they're actually faithful to Him. And it does so by giving us images of God's holiness and our sin. What you can and can't eat. What you can and can't wear or touch or handle. How you should bathe. But the New Testament covenants provide the substance to which those things actually point. Like, you can eat whatever. You can dress however. Bathe or not bathe. Take a bath, though. Because in Jesus, or shower, you know, we're grown-ups. Because in Jesus, you're clean. Nowhere is the shaping of the Old Testament more evident than the system of animal sacrifices, though, that God sets up through Moses. They were given as this incredibly graphic visual representation of what God's people's sin, sins deserve. Like, think about this. Have you ever gone to, like, a worship service and been like, I don't really connect with this. This is, like, not as good as I thought it would be. Like, 
this was not possible in the Old Testament. Like, you go to the temple, you bought a cow or a goat, or if you're poor, a dove. You go up to the temple, you take it to a priest, you put your your hand on this animal's head and look at it. The priest cuts that animal's throat with a knife, and it dies in front of you. Some of it they burn the altar, some of it you get to take home and eat. It is impossible to look at that and be like, I just don't know if I'm engaging. Like, I, don't, I don't know if I get it. <laughs> it is super engaging. There's an animal dying in front of you. What, what, what's missing in that? Like, why don't we just buy a bull and take it out in front of Murphy here and just sacrifice it? Like, why don't we do that anymore? Like, that, never going to do that. <laughs> Rest assured of that. Because those sacrifices are only a shadow of the reality that was to come. That the wages of sin is death. That's, that, that's its penalty. That's what it gets. And either I will die for my sin, or something or someone else will die for those sins. But regardless, the consequences of being a person made in God's image is the dignity that my thoughts, my feelings, my actions really do matter to the rest of the universe. And they really do carry weight in God's sight. And when those things are tainted by my sin, by the separation from God, and by the sense that I will be God in my own life, which you know, all of my actions and thoughts and feelings are. I can't help but be sowing death and sin into myself, into the people and the places and the things that I love in God's world. And that has consequences that someone has to pay for. And the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system was to show God's people in an incredibly graphic, super personal way, this is the consequence of someone's sin, and somebody has to pay for it. Did the animal sacrifices atone for that sin? No. If they had atoned for that sin, as this guy points out, then they could have stopped. What was their point then? To represent our need for something to die in our place. And to show us that we could not offer that thing substantially. You could bring a goat, you could bring a cow, you could bring a dove, but that thing would not actually deal with the core problem. I mean, think about what this would be like for an ancient Israelite. You show up to the temple a couple of times a year, just like your grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents before them, and you present your sacrifice. Bull, goat, dove, whatever. You see this animal die right in front of you. The lesson there, you're getting it. Someone's got to die for my sin. But you're seeing, like, you know, externally something's happened. But this thing is not doing the job that I need it to do. It's not actually dealing with the core part of me. There must be something else that's got to happen, right? Because here's the problem in the Old Testament. That externally people could look like they were doing okay, but internally they were not. And when there's a difference between the internal and the external, eventually what's true of you internally will always come out. This is why the history of Israel looks like one dumpster fire after another. Because externally you have this big, beautiful temple. Sacrifices are happening. Uh, people, people are doing basically what they need to be doing externally. But internally, behind closed door, people are worshipping idols. And they're sacrificing these idols. And the kings are corrupting the people. And the people are corrupting the kings And the most famous example of this is King David and Bathsheba. If you know anything about King David, you know that God calls him a man after his own heart. David follows God. He knows God. He's God's man on the throne. 
But one day he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. She's beautiful. He calls over to his house. They sleep together. She comes back later. She tells him he's, she's pregnant. And then he uses his power to have her husband, who's a good soldier, come back from the war. He tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife so that he kind of fool around with the pregnancy stuff. The guy doesn't do it. And so King David has him killed. And the aftermath of this affair is devastating. And in the aftermath, David writes Psalm 51. And he writes this. He says, what? For you will not, he's talking to God, you will not delight in sacrifice or give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Lord, a bull is not enough. Deal with my heart. Why? Because people's hearts need more than some external thing to change them. They need an internal change, right? And y'all, this is not just huge for them, it's huge for us too, right? Like, think about the fact that God has to set this up for his people. For hundreds of years, people just sacrificed mountains of bulls and goats and doves. What does that say about the human heart? That there's just something inside of me that's constantly trying to convince myself and the people around me that I'm, I'm, I'm fine with God. That believing in God is a helpful appendage to my everyday life, but that really I'm the one that needs to be calling the shots for me. Because y'all, you can be super familiar with Christian stuff. You can have grown up with it, immersed in it, involved in it in college, but feel like, you know, actually, I think I'm okay. I don't think I really need this. This is actually a little boring to me. Why? Because we're constantly running this campaign for ourselves with the headline, pretty good person. Too good? No. I don't want to be arrogant about it. But yeah, pretty good. (laughs) This is a humble brag approach to God and other people. That it wouldn't cost God anything to see me and know me and love me. That it's me. I'm the one. Look at me. I'm fine. Other people, sure, maybe. Like the bad people. But it's me, God. You know me. I've been around this stuff my whole life. Everything about this system, everything about the Old Testament, the shadow that's pointing to reality is trying to pound into the community of God's people that it is just the opposite. To quote David again, just a couple of psalms later, he's talking about the human race. All of us. He's saying they're all, they've all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There's none who does good. Not even one. Okay, but that's the Old Testament God. That's the Old Testament God. I want to deal with the New Testament God. They are the same God. Jesus thinks of them as the same God. If you are thinking about Jesus, considering Jesus, thinking of yourself as a follower of Jesus, that's something you're going to have to grapple with. Is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. And you need to understand, just like I need to understand, that a big part of why things don't go my way or why it's hard to have good friendships, or to date, be in a dating relationship that works, is us. That we are our own worst enemy. And the weird irony of it all is that we can feel the weight of the consequences of our sin. Broken relationships, deep disappointment with ourselves, stumbling into the same problems over and over and over again, even though like, they are glaring to the people that are closest to us, and we can just be blind to them. Because part of the reality of sin is that it deceives, and it deceives no one better than the one in whom it lives, which is all of us. Of course you're a pretty good person. 
For other people, that would be a problem, but you're going to be okay. Deal with this on your own. No way would God have any wrath against a pretty good person. And half of God's work in our lives is pulling away the veil of that self-deception and showing us the reality of our sinful selves against the reality of His holiness. Now, if this is just a shadow, think about how much more we understand of ourselves and our sin and God's mercy when the reality shows up. Because the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant is like the difference, I guess, between like a Model T car, like the old, old cars, and like the Model S Tesla. I mean, it is stark. Like, you have to take like that crank thing in the Model T and like wind it up. Like, the Tesla, though, is so strong that they, when they were testing it for safety, they took a machine and tried to press on the roof. The roof is so strong that the machine that was trying to crush it broke. It's incredible. The Model T runs on some sort of old-school gasoline that would destroy your Civic. The Tesla sucks energy out of a wall through a futuristic battery pack. Model T has no AC. I don't even think it has a roof. The Tesla can park itself, right? (laughs) But both are cars, and both do exactly what a car is supposed to do. You get in, and it takes you from point A to point B. I mean, the Model T might go 10 miles an hour, and the Tesla can go to like 60 in two seconds. But the, and the, but the functions, the capabilities that were only hinted at in those early cars are reality in the Tesla. The Old Testament and the New Testament covenants are similar. Both do exactly what they're supposed to do. They tie God and they tie His people together. But realities that were only hinted at in the Old Testament are fully reached in the New Testament. But both of them are taking you to the same place. And that's Jesus. Look at verse 5 here. Consequently, when Christ came in the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, I become to, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to Me in the scroll of your book. When He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the sacrifices. In order to establish the second, the will. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You know, think about this. In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of detailed instructions for like tables, for candlesticks, for altars, for robes, for curtains, for how we wash, for what we eat. But there are no instructions for a chair. Why not? Because the work of the priest is never done. They can't sit down. They're always sacrificing on behalf of the people. But what does the author of Hebrews here say though? That when Jesus finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's done. There's nothing else that he can do to make you right with God. Because of Christ, God's justice is so satisfied that he would not be just to deal with you according to your sin. He would be unjust. This is also why there's no kind of temple in the New Testament where we're supposed to go. You are the temple. The reality that was pointing to is realized in you. God lives in you. He lives with His people. I will be their God. They will be my people. He lives in you. And then what's the best way to do that, right? To live distantly from them? To be in your heart where it matters. I think that we all know on some level that if someone's going to live the Christian life, then it cannot simply be focused on our outward actions. The do's, the don'ts. 
that it has to flow out of our heart, out of our inmost being. If this is so, then for that person to follow God, God must be concerned with their heart. This is why Jesus never asked, you know, are you disciplined enough for me? Do you know enough Bible for me? But when he's dealing with his disciples, he always asks, do you love me? Because it's love for God and love for neighbor that marks a person as holy. That only begins in the heart. This is why the writer here also points to the results of Jesus' work. We have been sanctified. This is a finished thing. And he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Like, which is it? Are we sanctified? Is it done? Or are we being sanctified? Are we holy or is God making us holy? The answer is both. Christian, in God's eyes, you are already holy because of Christ's finished work. And at the same time, the full reality of that holiness is still working its way into your life. That light is breaking into the shadow of your sin. This is why we at RUF say that this is a place for people to be in process. Like, we're all in process. I'm in process with my sin, with who I am, with who God is. And we, but we can be certain that if God has begun to do something in you, that He will bring it to completion. And if God is not afraid of your sin, neither are we. And if God calls you to bring yourself and the whole weight of who you are with your struggles, your addictions, your fears, your worry, then we will be with you in the midst of His work in your life. Because, y'all, that's what real Christian community is about. It's joining God in the midst of His work in your neighbor's life. I think for a lot of us, where we can really think about this is how we approach motivation to live as a Christian or to want to live as a Christian. Because for many of us, one of the big struggles in our spiritual life is why don't I want to do the things that I know I need to do? Why don't, why do I feel cold to this? What's supposed to drive my actions? You know, for many of us, I think it can be guilt or fear that when I do what I'm supposed to do, God likes me. And when I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then our relationship is kind of in jeopardy. This can be, I'll admit, like kind of a powerful motivation for a while. That as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, then everything will be okay. And knowing that God is going to quit being on my side if I screw up, yeah, that gives me a little bit of something to like keep me from going off the deep end. But the reality, though, if you've ever been in a place where you felt manipulated or guilty, is that that doesn't last very long. That has no power for lasting change. But think about what happens also to the cross, to Jesus' work, when a person's interior life is motivated by guilt. It shrinks. Doesn't it? Because you don't need the cross if you're motivated by guilt. Like, I'm just going to get my act together and I'm going to fix this thing. Or, you know, there's some sort of disconnect and I just don't see how this is helping me right now. But either way, this person is fine on their own. They may need Jesus sometimes as like a plus one to kind of appease a few things. But really, they don't need him that much. At one point, Jesus looks at someone who's motivated by guilt in the Gospels and he says, For he who's been forgiven little, loves little. You see, for us to understand Jesus' work in our lives, for us to really want to follow him, or want to want to follow him, we have to understand something about the reality of our sin. We have to understand something of what the Old Testament is pointing towards in Christ. That means something has to die. Someone has to pay for something here. Because the reality is that that is true for all of us. And sin is constantly pulling the wool over our eyes and saying, you're a pretty good person. You've got this. 
You don't need the cross over there. But the reality is that when I don't need the cross, I don't, need any, I don't have any motivation to follow God. Or that when I approach someone and say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but there's nothing of the law, there's nothing of the reality of who I am, then why does that person care? Like, why would they want or need the cross? This is a recipe without sin, without, without dealing with our sin and dealing with the cross, is a recipe for making people who are Pharisees, who are legalistic. You know, to have someone who is just cold or plastic or inauthentic, like, that is not a recipe for enjoying the Christian life. That's a recipe for hating the Christian life and being burnt out on the church and being burnt out on the gospel. But the reality of the Christian life is that real Christian growth goes, grows as I understand more of my sin and more of what Jesus has done for me. Because let's be honest, to become a Christian makes life a little bit more difficult. And if you're afraid of struggle, this is probably not the faith for you. Probably you should look for something else. Because to grow as a Christian means to become more and more aware of what Jesus died for in my life. That is, the Christian life is learning more and more just what is the quantity and what is the quality of my sin from which I've been set free. And, you know, I don't think that the Christian life is all about being miserable and just feeling how, like, sinful I am. The gospel is not the more miserable I am, the more accepted I am by God. I think God is nauseous at that. But the truth of the gospel is that unless you see your sin, you'll never see the joy of the cross. You'll never see the power of the cross. That is, every day I need to live with a more and more vivid knowledge of my own sin. Yeah. Of what, like, what it is in me that just wants to be cut off from God and wants to do things is running this private PR campaign. However, at the same time, to see the cross, to know the cross, to know why Jesus died, that He is sufficient, He's seated on His throne for me, for you if you believe is to grow in a joy and a sense and an appreciation of, man, I really need to get out of myself. I need to get into Him. I need to understand Him. You know, I, I need Jesus more tomorrow than I needed Him today. I needed Him today more than I needed Him yesterday. Think about it this way. How many of you have ever been dumped? I mean, like, really dumped. Like, maybe it was going great. Maybe it was, like, super fun. You even thought, like, maybe we'll get married. That'd be cool. Uh, and then, <laughs> this is, that's my internal monologue. <laughs> and then it all blows up in your face. And it just comes out of the blue. And if the breakup is bad, y'all, you know, like, the aftermath the next few weeks is, like, really terrible. Like, that's when you're, like, binging, like, Ben and Jerry's and just, like, watching so much Netflix. It's scary. Like, do you remember that awkward sort of nervous pain that you feel after that happens? I think that we can tell ourselves, you know, like, I'm just getting out of the habit of being around that person. And, you know, I'm not used to not being around them so much. But really, I think that the pain is really nothing more than the pain of rejection. That someone who knows us well has said to us, in effect, you aren't the man. You aren't enough for me. You're not ambitious enough. You're not funny enough. You don't have the right personality. I can do better, so I'm leaving. And the awkwardness of the following weeks comes with wrestling with this estimation of ourselves. And people tend to deal with breakups in two ways. On the one hand, I think they can like look for a replacement. He'll be like, no, 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 you're great, you're the man, you're awesome, you're really valuable, you're really loved, and just kind of like reassure us, right? And after some time, the pain goes away. 
But is that real love? Do they, have they really looked at who you are and dealt with you? The other type of response comes from the person who kind of becomes like depressed or despondent. That these people kind of literally grow to hate themselves. Like guys just get more and more insecure and unsure about relationships. Girls grow more desperate to change themselves. Sometimes it flip-flops, but those are just big brush strokes. But what if there's a third way? There's another campus minister that I listened to recently, Les Newsome. He said that he once had a girl sitting in his living room who'd just gone through one of these kind of breakups. And he said that what she, she was saying in the midst of this really surprised him. Because she hadn't done either one of those things. The Hearst comment was something like this. I don't know how else to say it, Les. I just got to the point where I stopped being afraid of what I was so afraid was true. And I owned up to who I was. Like, this person was probably right about me. I'm probably not as great as I thought I was. And something happened. I all of a sudden knew I was okay. I knew that I was going to be fine. What she had owned up to, though, was her limitation. She admitted to herself, this might be true. And she hit rock bottom. And all of a sudden she realized that rock bottom wasn't as bad as she thought it would be. As a matter of fact, it was just good, solid ground. And the really amazing fact that Les said was that he and his wife noticed in that moment, instead of being morbid or self-absorbed, that this girl actually became more attractive to them. That her confidence that she gained in the self-assessment actually made her look and sound so mature and so at peace and so winsome that this was someone that could really deal with themselves and know themselves well and that it was okay. And I want to suggest to you that this is a picture of the gospel in real life. Have you ever struggled with how the freedom of the gospel is to be squared with the necessity of living a holy life? That I can't sin enough to get out of God's love, and yet God commands that I be as holy as He is. Like, that's a tall order. How do I get there? We own who we are. Own who you are. What the Bible says about us is that we're sinners. We don't just sin and then become sinners, but that we sin because we are sinners. And that the moment we own that, and we own the fact that God has looked at us and said, you're not enough in yourself. Somebody has to die in your place. Is the moment we can turn to God and see that He adores just those kinds of people. And strangely, we're fine. That this is where... A love for the cross, a love for Jesus, where humility, where patience, where kindness, where genuineness comes from. That I'm more sinful, more wretched, more depraved than I could possibly imagine, and I'm more loved, accepted, forgiven in Jesus than I could ever dare dream. That this is living by the gospel. This is motivation. This is dealing with my heart. This is the reality that the cross points to. This is the very body of Jesus being condemned by God for sin. You see him beaten, condemned, tortured, suffering God's wrath for our sins because God is brutally honest about what we deserve and who we are. That yet, because Jesus does that for you, though, you are free to go. Because it's a human being and not an animal. It's effectual. Because it's God offering to God what only man could and should be able to give. It's acceptable. That we tend to think of God's holiness on one hand as pushing people away, And His grace on the other is drawing people near. But on the cross you see both His holiness and His love together meeting. And as the old hymn says, kissing. Being together in harmony. God is no longer shadowy and distant, but He is near and clear. He doesn't repel, but He draws close. 
and His holiness, His love, that's what draws us to Him. And so I'll end with this. Um, Gloria Vanderbilt, one of the heirs of the massive Vanderbilt fortune, the school is named after their family, just money on money on money on money. She had houses, she had jewelry, she could travel, she had the prestige of this incredible wealth. Like She had it all. But after the death of her second husband, she became the victim of this kind of embezzlement Ponzi scheme. And this scheme cost her millions and millions of dollars, and it got her into a lot of trouble with the IRS. And seeking to recoup some of its lost revenue, saying, like, you know, you're Gloria Vanderbilt. You have a lot of money. You're not paying us what we think you owe. The government went to her safe deposit box in her bank, and it just started opening up these safety deposit boxes and looking inside trying to scramble for her treasure, for her money. And what did they find inside of them? Was it like art or diamonds or like gold bars? You know, whatever it is that rich people keep in safe deposit boxes. I don't know. When the boxes were open, though, what the government found was the only treasure these things contained were cards and drawings and little mementos that her kids had done for her. That her treasure was her children. That on the cross you see not the distant, shadowy heart of God, but that you see the reality of His heart for you. That you are His treasure. That God loves you. That what had been invisible and distant and so far away in the Old Testament is brought near in the body of Jesus. That God looks at you and sees you and knows who you are. All the depth of you, the scary part that you're afraid to admit, and he says, I love you. I'm for you. This is my heart for you. And it's Jesus. And that's what the Old Testament, that's what the New Testament are pointing us to. As always, that's my invitation to you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son Jesus, who's seated on his throne right now. Who stands and intercedes for us right now. Lord, who in Him and through Him and because of Him, You have no condemnation against us. But that You can look at us and You can see the reality and the depth of who we are. God, that our sins have separated us from us and yet because You see us in Jesus and everything that He has is ours, You say they're holy. They are beloved. I have nothing against this person. Lord, help us to live out of that reality. Help us be motivated by that reality. Help us to see the reality of our sin atoned for in His cross. That we would be free, that we would be full of His love, be full of peace and kindness and the goodness of God. And that we would give that to the people who are sitting right next to us. In your name we pray. Amen.